Well, good morning. We are continuing our series in the book of James this morning, in chapter 1, starting with verse 9. It's my privilege to address you all this morning. Well, the title of my message this morning is Rich Wisdom from James 1, 9 through 12. We all tend to love, don't we, the rags-to-riches story. Whether it be in written form or whether it be on the big screen. From the sobering story, from the Academy Award-winning slumdog millionaire to perhaps the more airy Disney fairy tale. I was reminded of this in an odd way this last week after speaking to my children I was drawing them out on a movie they had just watched, The Princess and the Frog. The storyline goes like this. Born into poverty, Tiana, the main character, works two jobs, saving every penny in hopes of one day opening her own restaurant. But the dream never seems to materialize, and her hopes are continually dashed. Until one day, she wishes upon a star and meets... Prince Naveen. Actually, Prince Naveen is a frog who's been cursed by the voodoo witch doctor. But Prince Naveen reveals to Tiana that he is actually a prince, that he, the frog, is actually famously wealthy, and he can give her whatever she wants. There's only one catch. She needs to kiss him. So Tiana... The main character weighs the options. Hmm. Poverty or riches? Being a waitress the rest of my life or owning my own restaurant? So what happens? She reaches down, puckers up, and locks lips with the green amphibian. And of course, upon the kiss, Prince of the Frog turns back into the young, dashing prince. And they live happily ever after, as the fairy tale goes. Nope. <laughs> it didn't quite work out that way. To her dismay and to her surprise, Tiana turns into a frog, just like Prince Naveen. And so the story unfolds. A silly cartoon story? Yeah, perhaps. A parable for the test of money? I think so. Perhaps the story of Tiana describes some of you today. You've spent much of your life wishing upon a star, thinking, dreaming, if only I had this, if only I possessed this, if only I could do that. And of course the implication being that I would find a security, a satisfaction and a contentment, materially speaking. If that's you, you've kissed the frog. But for many of us, we don't even know it. In fact, for some of us, we are serial frog kissers. Well, what is this frog that I'm speaking about? It's the frog of vain ambition, of riches, of glory offered to you 
by the almighty dollar, i.e. money. And you've become like the very frog you've kissed, materialistic and me-centered. And you wonder why you lack spiritual depth and ambition. Your dreams are earthbound, they're shallow, and they're fleeting. Well, God this morning wants to remind you, church, wants to remind me of the crown of life. The true crown of riches that awaits every one of us who are in Christ. But a crown of life and riches that is not found in this earth or in any earthly prince, but is found alone in Christ Jesus. I believe God is saying to us this morning, let your poverty or let your riches drive you to Christ in heavenward. In other words, wise up. Wise up to the test of money and stop kissing the frog. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes this morning to what is true. Give us eyes to see the spiritual realities behind the material world in which we live. And Lord, we ask, would you give us the heart to choose you, to live for you, and not for the fleeting treasures and pleasures of this earth. Amen. Let us read our text this morning, James chapter 1, starting with verse 9 through 12. The Word of God says this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Well, the first question we must ask of the text is how does it relate to the surrounding text? I.e., what is its context? Is James just skipping to another unrelated topic? In these few verses? Or does what Al taught two weeks ago about the trials that we encounter, verses 2 through 4, and what Jose Prado spoke about last week, the need for wisdom, in verses 5 through 8, do these words relate to our passage today? I'd like to propose to you that I believe, yes, it does. I believe that James saw a connection, and so should we. He begins his letter in verse 2 with these words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then skipping down to verse 12, we read very similar, don't we? Almost parallel words. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. By the way, don't be fooled in your ESV. These words are the inspired word of God. But the paragraph headings, they are not inspired, okay? They're put there for readability. So I believe 12 goes right along with verse 11. You see, in these verses, verses 2 and verses 12, form what we call a verbal bracket, so to speak. 
And what lies between these brackets, verses 3 through 11, are exhibit A. And I believe particularly verses 9 and 10 this morning are the prime example of the trial and testing each of us face. It's called money. You see, given the context, James seems to be saying that the challenges of poverty and the challenges of wealth may be the greatest trials that you face as a Christian. Can you relate? Can you relate to the test of money? Church, both poverty and riches are a test. Do you want to know the measure of a man? Do you want to know the measure of a woman? Do you want to know his character? What his hopes are? What is the source of his faith? Bring on a global recession. Take away his job. Foreclose on his house. And challenge him or her to give sacrificially. Yes, even and especially when it hurts. Or, even better yet, you want to know the measure of a man or woman? Give him a fat inheritance. Land her that lucrative job. Prosper his business. Give her that beautiful, spacious home. Or give them the vacations of their dreams. Friends, all of this is exactly what God is doing. And it's what he's doing at Palm Vista. God is the sovereign trial maker. He is shaping the trials to test each and one of you. For some of you this morning, it's a trial and test of scarcity. And for some, it's a test or trial of prosperity. Why? That you might be steadfast, that you might be dependent alone upon the Lord. God is using money and he's using your possessions to test your hearts and to evaluate your worship. See, money is the means. Money is not the problem here. Money is the test. And each one of us today, whether we're aware of it or not, is facing the test of poverty or wealth. You may not be poor, but you may sure feel poor this morning. You may not consider yourselves wealthy. Oh, but you're wealthier and richer than you think. Church, how we need wisdom in this area of money. We need God's wisdom in order to be steadfast, to pass the test which God has ordained for you and for me. That we would not be double-minded, as it says in James verse 8 of chapter 1. That we would not be double-souled, as Jose preached upon that we not try to live according to the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. Church, you can't kiss the frog and live for God. You can't do both. It simply doesn't work. Christ said it this way in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We need God's perspective, don't we? We need God's wisdom, especially when it comes to the test of money. So you ready for some wisdom? Here we go. Let's look at the first part of our passage, back to verse 9 of chapter 1. Let the lowly brother boast 
in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Whoa, James, what are you talking about here, buddy? That doesn't sound like wisdom to me. Literally, the text says, let the lowly brother, he ought to boast in his height. Or in the NIV says, let the lowly brother boast in his high position. And the rich in his humiliation. Or as the NIV puts it, let the rich boast in his low position. What's up with that? That's all upside down. Friends, this is God's wisdom. It's a paradox, isn't it? It's a paradox. What's a paradox? A paradox is a self-contradiction that when explained is shown to be true and it's meant to jolt us. I love this quote that I stole from pastor and author Ken Hughes. The quote itself is from G.K. Chesterton. A paradox is truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. Up is down. Down is up. Do you hear God shouting this morning? He's trying to get our attention here in this text. So you miss this point. You miss this paradox. You miss the whole passage. And you'll be left kissing the frog. See, God's turning the world's wisdom upside down. Church, we need God's wisdom. We need God's stabilizing wisdom in an upside-down world, do we not? Because this is not how we think. This is not how I think. We desperately need help to see the spiritual realities which worldly wisdom cannot see or worldly wisdom denies. We need to see in Scripture what is often called the great eschatological reversal. Don't be scared by that term. We're going to get to it in your notes. The great reversal. Simply put, in eternity, in the end, eschatological refers to last things, in the end, many of us will find ourselves in opposite conditions from our current situation on earth. Did you catch that? This is not some esoteric, isolated teaching in James. It was a message that Christ preached time and time again while he was here on earth. Many of you know it. Many of you have heard of it. Let me try this one out. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Help this one from Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There you go. See, the question is, do you believe it? Are you living like it? By the way, did this scare you? <laughs> Can I be honest? This, this scares me. Church, don't be impressed by those who are on stage. Don't be impressed by those who walk in and seem to have it made financially. This scares me because I'm on stage. And I don't feel rich, but I'm rich. According to the world standards, when I say it scares me, it concerns me. It causes me to reevaluate my understanding of money and my attitude towards possessions. So for many of us, this should be a jolt this morning. But for others of you who are struggling, you're just struggling to make ends meet, may this word also be an encouragement to you as well.
You see, there are two types of people, two reversals, which James is addressing in this text. Reversal number one, what we'll call the poor rich. You see, probably most of the recipients of this letter would fall into this category. They were those who were poverty-stricken Jewish Christians who were poor most likely because of their faith. That is, there were Christians who because of their decision to follow Christ were discriminated against, were persecuted, or at least had little opportunity for economic advancement. They were looked down upon. They were considered the lowly ones in the eyes of the world. Perhaps you're here this morning. You tithe. You give regularly. You have made sacrifices to raise your children and to serve this church. And for some of you, that's meant living off one income or even choosing a job of lower pay. And you are hurting financially this morning. Perhaps you've been passed over for promotion because of your biblical convictions or just your honesty. And so you languish in your current job. Perhaps you've made poor choices in the past, even before you're a Christian, and you're suffering financially because of debt, perhaps because of lack of education. Yeah, you're a Christian, but you're still reaping from the choices that you made in the past long ago. Perhaps because of nothing in your control is simply the evil and injustice that has been done to you, perhaps even a physical disability, you have been left with nothing. Can I tell you something this morning? God does not pity your lowly or humble state. He doesn't. Oh, our God is gracious. Yes, our God is compassionate and concerned for the poor. But you see in James here, do you notice this? James is not commiserating with the poor Christian who is lowly in the eyes of the world. Rather, James, I believe God, sees them as a spiritually advantaged. Do you see that? Poor ones, do you believe that? For Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed Happy are the poor in spirit. Whole are the poor in spirit. For theirs is what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, as it says in Matthew. A church, please don't misunderstand. Poverty isn't a virtue any more than wealth. Poverty does not guarantee godliness. But in other words, it's our economic poverty that God often uses To what? To show us our spiritual poverty. That is to humble us. It's our financial struggles that God uses to wean us from this world and show us our utter and desperate need for him. So if you consider yourself poor this morning, rejoice. God is freeing you from the sway of earthly treasures to focus on your heavenly treasures found in Christ. Don't miss it. You are rich. But it's so easy to miss it. 
Why? Because most of us here, we're people of means, and we are rich by the world's standards. And that's the concern that James takes up in the rest of his exhortation in verse 11, by way of warning and by example. Reversal one, the poor rich. Now for the second reversal, what we'll call the rich poor. You see, in this age, the wealthy man, in our culture, he's honored, is he not? He's courted. But when viewed in light of God's future, it's a whole different picture, isn't it? As Ken Hughes says in his excellent pastoral commentary on James, we tend to think of the rich as overprivileged, but Jesus taught that they are underprivileged, spiritually speaking. We see this elsewhere in Mark chapter 10, verse 24. We read, But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is this so? Because so often we, the prosperous, are blind to our true spiritual state. We see this elsewhere very clearly in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 3, verse 17, when God is addressing the church at Laodicea. And he says to them, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Up until November 26th, 2009, Tiger Woods was probably the most famous, wealthy, and respected athlete in the world. He seemed to have it all, didn't he? All the money, a beautiful wife, a couple of children. His projected worth in 2010 was estimated to be $1 billion. If Tiger Woods were a country, he would rank 160th in the World Bank's list by gross domestic product. In other words, there are 22 countries poorer than Tiger Woods. And as he said in his own words, referring to his multiple affairs, I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules did not apply. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. I can't speak to the degree of sincerity of Tiger Woods or even the origins of these words, as many have debated. But I can speak to the sinful and deceived human heart as we see it revealed in Scripture. See, folks, riches can incline us to think that we really are the deserving ones, that we somehow can play by different rules other than God's rules. That in essence, we are God. All the while, we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, what Tiger Woods 
downfall illustrates is that which is true of each of us. Our riches can blind us to a real spiritual need and to our eternal destination. And so James goes on to warn us of the folly of riches. We read verse 9, that the lowly boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Why? Look at the next word. Because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. An allusion there to Isaiah 40. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So what is God's wisdom that we need? Number one, there is a great reversal that is about to happen at the end of time. The great eschatological reversal. And number two, it's to know the impermanence of our lives and our wealth here on earth. Our riches, our possessions, they're all fading away along with our mortal bodies here on earth. Along with the great reversal on that day of judgment is what I call the great fade. The great fade that leads up to it. I witness that great fade every time I look into the mirror. I'm not talking about my hairdo. I'm talking about my aging, okay? That I am mortal. Psalm 103, verse 15, puts it this way. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Do you get the picture? Do you get the composite picture here in Scripture that our lives on earth are transitory, they're fleeting, they're momentary, and thus so is our wealth as well. Like the flower that blooms one day, and is wilted by the Florida heat and humidity the next. Our lifespan is like those of mayflies. Have you heard of mayflies? Let me tell you about them. They're sometimes called June bugs or shadflies. In many languages, they're simply translated the one-day fly. The one-day fly. Why? Because a mayfly's lifespan is anywhere from 30 minutes to approximately one day, depending on the species. This is what a mayfly does. They molt, shed their casing, they mate, and they die, all in 24 hours. During their life, they don't even have time to eat. In fact, they have no capacity to eat. Their digestive tract is filled with air. A fat, stuffed, wealthy mayfly there never was. Friends, our lives here on earth in comparison to eternity are like those of mayflies. How does that change your view of your house? Yeah, my leaking house right now. <laughs> Kevin's leaking house, yes, right now. My property. How does that change your view of your precious collections, whatever they are? How does this affect your view of your retirement savings, your 401k, or whatever's left of it? Or of your motorcraft? Or even of the latest technology? By the way, technology 
is more along along the species of mayfly that lives about 30 minutes, okay? That is technology for us. Does the reality of our lifespan in God's coming judgment, does it worry you this morning? Does it cause cause you reason to be anxious? Or do these words confirm the lifestyle choices that you have made? See, how does the impermanence, the transitory nature of your life here on earth change not only how you view your own possessions, how does it change how you view others? You know, those that you envy, those that make more money, that have a larger home, that drive a nicer car, or those who have more up-to-date clothing. Let's hear the words of Psalm 49, verse 16 and 17. When we read, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Or as the old adage goes, I've never seen a hearst towing a U-Haul. Or to put it in the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5.15, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. The wealthiest man on earth, King Solomon, penned those words. He knew that wealth was only transitory. He learned the hard way. That affluence could bring no lasting satisfaction. To pursue affluence was meaningless. It was vain. He called it a grasping after the wind. Like chasing a mirage on a hot summer day. It is and was an illusion. Church, how thankful I am for the words in God's scripture in the book of James that he reminds us of these truths this morning, that I can hear it now. It won't just hear it on that day when it's too late. If you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever, verse 11 that we just read brings no hope to you this morning. Only the stark reality that you are investing in a mirage, in a facade, Only death and judgment wake, wait, like the scorching sun. And all your boasting, it's in vain. It's a sad irony, actually, that what you're boasting in is the very demise of that which you've put all your hope into. But if this is you this morning, it is not too late, for you're still breathing By God's grace, you are here this morning. And I believe there is hope. But God is saying, turn and repent from vainglory. What is vainglory? It is sin. And turn to Christ, who offers a forgiveness and a glory that the world knows nothing about. If you are a believer this morning, I believe most of you are, I believe James is speaking to you in this passage that there is hope even for the most richest among us. But that hope is not to be found in our economic status, is it? Or our bank account. It's to be found in our status before Christ.
is to be found in a boasting. A boasting that transports us from this material world to the spiritual realities of one who is to be found in Christ. And all this, this wisdom, leads to this final point. Wise up and start boasting. In fact, the very first word of this passage in verse 9, in the original language in the Greek, the very first word we read is the imperative of the command to boast. And that's just where we end this morning. To boast is the very claim of this text on our lives. It's what wising up looks like. It's where wisdom leads. It leads to boasting. Ah, but a boasting as prescribed by Scripture. For this boasting, which we're reading about, is a boasting that's the very antidote to the wisdom of this world. It's what keeps us from kissing the frog and holding out for that which is infinitely better, the riches of Christ. To boast to be means to glory in, to take pride in. But as I mentioned, boasting is not necessarily wrong. It's a matter of what or whom you are boasting in. Verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother, that is the Christian, boast in his exaltation. This word exaltation is used in Scripture to describe the heavenly realm, the height to which Christ ascended after his crucifixion. Let the lowly boast in their height. little clue. That word height, it's a code word. It's a code word for the gospel. Let me explain. When Jesus came to earth, he came to die upon a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of this world of those he had chosen. And his death is now your death for all those in Christ Jesus. Death to sin, the bondage of sin. Ah, but his, not only is his death your death, but his resurrection is now your resurrection as well. Al's going to be preaching upon that next Sunday, on Easter Sunday. His resurrection is a promise of our resurrection. His life is now our life. As he lives, we will now live forevermore. The mayfly will one day resurrect again, never to die. Eternal life with Christ is now our inheritance, and the riches of Christ is ours. You see, all the material blessings we see here in the Scripture, in God's promises, in his covenant with his people, are now fulfilled in Christ. The glory of God that we read about in the temple has been now fulfilled in Christ. The Sabbath rest has now been fulfilled in Christ. The promised land promised to his people where God reigns and his blessing is known is now found in Christ and now given to us when we read in Matthew that the meek shall inherit the earth. So you want a glory. So you want rest. So you want riches. You have it in Christ Jesus. And what you will experience in part, one day you will experience in full when you, Christian brother and sister, rise and are exalted and are before Christ in heaven. On that day, 
There will be no more groaning. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more waiting. There will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more doubting. No more temptation. No more mirages. No more facades. No more wants. Church, are you boasting? That's what it means to boast in your height, in your exaltation, to boast in the gospel, in the riches of Jesus Christ. That you can say to your financial adversities, oh, but I am rich and mean it. That's what we read in the following chapter of James, chapter 2, verse 5, when James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Church, are you taking inventory of your riches in Christ this morning? That's faith. Are you taking inventory? I fear that some of you may be living off the land this morning, scraping by moaning and groaning. And all the while, there is a rich oil reserve right underneath your feet. And you don't even know it. See, God's saying this morning, start drilling. Start studying. Come to me. Know me and my riches. Take inventory of the riches in Christ. Wise up that you may know the glories and my riches. Why? So when the enemy of your soul walks up to you and tells you that your land is worthless and he offers you a measly $100, you can say, I'll try to say it like Al, get out of town, Jack. You got nothing on me. I will not be swindled. Did you hear what God's saying? Wise up. Start digging. Start talking to yourself. Start boasting in your exaltation. And when you're face to face with your financial trials and that frog is puckering up, start boasting in Christ. And finally, to the rich believer, we read, let the rich boast in his humiliation. Does that puzzle you? In other words, in the face of your prosperity, learn to say, what an undeserving wretch am I. Boast in the amazing grace of God. For it is those who are humble who will be exalted. When you feel smugly secure in your possessions, and you have the esteem of the world. Identify with Christ, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. Philippians 2. Identify with Christ, and identify with the lowly and the poor. Serve the poor. Starting with those in our midst and know the abandoned joy and freedom of giving. Heed the words 
of Jeremiah, so relevant for us today, found in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Commit to boasting that you are known and loved by a gracious God. And remember this promise that we conclude with in verse 12 of our passage. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In Randy Alcorn's novel, Deadline, we get one such picture of that day when we, his children, will receive that crown of life. We get that picture through a character in his novel named Finney as he enters heaven. Let me read. At the back of the crowd stood one being glowing with a soft light that did not blind, but attracted and captivated the eyes. He smiled at Finney, who trembled with joy at the immediate realization of who it was. This was the ageless one, the ancient of days, who was eternally young. He stepped forward, he who had spun the galaxies into being with a single snap of his finger, he who could uncreate all that existed with no more than a thought, extended his hand to Finney, as if the hand he extended was that of a plain, ordinary carpenter. For the moment, it was impossible to look elsewhere, and no one in his right mind would have wanted to. Welcome, my son. Enter the kingdom prepared for you by virtue of a work done by another, a work you could not do. Here you shall receive reward for those works you did in my name, works you were created to do. And then with a smile that communicated more than any smile Finney had ever seen, the Great One looked into his eyes and said with obvious pride, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In other words, Son, you passed the test. And as the crowd broke out into cheers, Finney felt overwhelmed and dropped to his knees, then flat on the ground, face down, as if the knees were still too lofty, a position before the Lord of heaven. Friends, on that day, our best boast will be our lowest bow. Let's pray. I'd invite the worship team to come forward now. Oh, Lord, 
We boast this morning not in our abilities nor our riches. Nothing in our hands we bring. Only to the cross we cling. Oh Lord, show us now what it means to boast in you, to boast in our exaltation, to boast in you, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, church, it is time to boast in our humiliation now. To boast in the one who has given us life. So let's do that now as a fitting conclusion. Let us boast not in our own glory, but in the glory and riches of the Christ and Savior we serve. Let us stand.